Welcome to the Decipher podcast. I'm Lindsay O'Donnell Welch, executive editor at Decipher, and I am here today with Casey Ellis, the chairman, founder, and CTO of Bug Crowd, and a 20 plus year veteran in information security. So, Casey, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Lindsay. Good to chat again. Yeah, so you have quite the track record. Um, you pioneered the crowdsource security as a service model when you launched the first bug bounty programs on the Bug Crowd platform in 2012, I believe. And then a few years later, you co-founded the Disclose.io vulnerability disclosure standardization project. So there is a lot there for sure. So when we look at all of this, what really first inspired you to focus in on vulnerability disclosure in your career? Was there kind of a epiphany moment or direct experience that really made you want to focus in on this or did it just kind of happen? Uh, no, there was definitely a, a couple of epiphany moments. Um, you know, I've, I've always loved hacking and, and, you know, innovation kind of as a, as an adjacent um, train of thought to hacking. So that was kind of the precursor to it. Um, with, with bug crowd really just looking at, you know, traditional solutions, traditional approaches, you know, when it comes to outsmarting the adversary and, and realizing that like the math is wrong, you know, if there's, if there's lots of people building software and, and doing awesome stuff, but making mistakes that introduce vulnerabilities in the process. And then you've got this kind of undefined crowd of adversaries with their own incentive to find those issues and exploit them. You know, one person being paid by the hour, no matter how good they are, um, is eventually going to lose. Um, so that, you know, I, I think the uh, the kind of irrational founder gene in me got kind of locked on that idea and I wanted to try to find ways to solve it. I think on the other side of it, you know, having grown up in the hacker community, um, you know, kind of wanting to keep my buddies out of jail in a sense, like not, not just from, you know, that, that side of it in particular ended up turning into, into disclose IO, but you know, on, on, on the bug crowd end of things, it was really about how do we normalize and, and kind of promote the role of, of the hacker and people that can think differently and do, you know, bad things to computers, but for good reasons, um, how do we normalize that in, in the market? Cause at that point in time, you know, if you're a hacker, you're an inherently bad and, and kind of inherently evil. I think, you know, in the uh, in the coming up on 10 years since, there's been a lot of progress in, in folk getting their head around the idea of there being like a digital locksmith and, and, you know, not that we're just all burglars or something like that. Right. Yeah. I think that normalization that you talked about is really important. And I know one major part of vulnerability disclosure and kind of the conflict that we've seen around that has been how hackers are perceived by companies at a broader level. So, you know, for the longest time, we've seen the term hacker as something that unfortunately was viewed as much more insidious than what reality is. So, you know, how has that term changed since you first started looking at vulnerability disclosure policies and vulnerability management over the past decade? I, I think I think hacker is still definitely, um, you know, a, a term that frightens some people. I think the, the broader view 
in in technology now, not just in security, is that it is actually a dual use concept. It, it's it's not it's not a concept that has an inherent moral loading, which is kind of where we started. If you're doing this sort of thing, technology, that means you must be nefarious or malicious. Therefore, we shouldn't trust you. Therefore, if you're a hacker, you're, you're a bad person, please go away. Um, I think we're past that now, broadly speaking, to the point where people, you know, see it as a kind of morally agnostic um, skill set or, or, or craft or trade. And it really becomes a question at that point of, of you know, where you, where you draw your ethical lines as you do the, the hacking thing, so to speak. Um, you know, more broadly, like the, the idea of that, so, so that's around the word. I mean, <clears throat> there's all of this, all of this stuff. Um, you know, we, we've put a lot into this, as have a bunch of others over the years to try to like reclaim the word hacker. And I, I don't feel that will ever be a, a solved problem fully. Um, but I think kind of reintroducing this idea of it being possible for that sort of thing to be done in good faith, um, that's definitely, you know, that wasn't true when we started. I believe it is true now, which is awesome. I know you still kind of hear these stories too. Like back in 2017, you had the whole incident with uh, DJI, the drone maker, if you remember that, and the security researcher who tried to report a vulnerability and was met with threats and then even this past year you kind of you have the drama with the Missouri governor who was vowing that he would prosecute a journalist who recorded a security flaw so we're still kind of seeing these types of incidents crop up and at the same time I would say you know there have been a lot of positives too right I mean there have been a ton of initiatives in the U.S. government look at hack the Pentagon and look at CISA and the DHS doing a pretty good job of making it known that they want to recruit hackers and hackers are good. So I would say this is a good thing. Yeah, most definitely. Most definitely. I, I think, you know, CISA's, CISA's work around the, the binding operational directive that they put out with, with OMB to, to mandate that across the US federal government, they put a lot of work into really explaining what was going on to, to a bunch of folk that would probably be unfamiliar with it at first pass. Um, because that, that is the starting point. You know, when you, when you talk to someone about hackers being helpful and now they're going to tell you where you've made a mistake, like that's, that can be quite an unusual and confronting idea. You know, the first time you hear it, right. So you got to basically take people through the why and the process and, and why it's actually really important as a, as something that you do. Um, the other thing that, that CISA put a lot of work into was, you know, including safe harbor clauses into uh, into their their you know recommended boilerplate language. Um, some of the stuff that actually drew from Disclose.io and ended up parts of it going back into Disclose.io as, a, as an open source standardization project, and that's really reflective of the fact that the laws haven't caught up with with this idea of, of dual use and and the ability to hack in in, in good faith, like most things are still written in a way that assumes that you know you, you you're breaking the law and you've got to kind of prove that you aren't um which is not like most other crimes so you know the idea of like putting templates out there to, that allow organizations to create a carve out for people that are working in good faith that again is something that's fairly novel and, and fairly hard to do like when lawyers get kind of led into uncharted territory they tend to get quite verbose you know, in the interest of being legally complete, and that ends up confusing for folks. So, CISA did a really good job of of basically shortcutting that. And yeah, you know, Bugcrowd's proud to be the uh, the partner of choice on on actually delivering those those VDPs, and in some cases, bug bounty programs out to the federal government here in the US. 
Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That uh, the partnership. Can you talk a little bit more about the impact of that, especially across different government agencies, and how the role it has been? Yeah, definitely. You know, the the big thing is that it's it's not as simple as just putting a policy out there on a on a website and then opening a, an email inbox, or, you know, and then optionally you know offering to pay people if you if you're taking a VDP and actually turning it into a bug bounty program. Um, there's, you know, the the vulnerability triage, there's the remediation workflows, there's making sure that information gets to the right place within the organization so that stuff can get fixed. And in the meantime, you know, there's someone who's found an issue, who's who's waiting for a response and trying to understand whether or not they've been helpful and if that thing's going to get fixed. All of that process needs management. And, you know, that's a lot of what Bug Crowd's built out, you know, in the, in the form of our, our team and, and the stuff that we've built into the platform. Um, to really simplify that, to specialize in, in doing that sort of thing well. And, you know, f- to the extent that government agencies aren't usually like on the cutting edge of technology, um, they oftentimes need a fair bit of help with, with you know, implementing new ideas like this one. So this is, this is where we come in to help them actually run the program, but also guide them through setting it up if that's needed as well. Yeah, right. I've heard plenty of stories of companies that want to start rolling out a program or something, but they don't take into account the triage efforts or the reporting aspect of it, or even being able to handle the kinds of the different kinds of vulnerabilities that come up. So there's uh, definitely a lot there. Yeah, definitely. With 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 starting it up, this is something that we saw a lot uh, early early on in Bug Crowd when you know, uh, like bug bounty as a, as a concept kind of got a bit of a halo effect, um, around it and that still exists, but you know, early on that was like the dominant feature people just wanting to do it because they wanted to get in tech crunch and, and make a big noise about how good they were at security without necessarily thinking through the downstream, you know, adjustments that it's ultimately meant to cause. Like to me, you know, public programs in particular, vulnerability disclosure and, and bug bounty programs, the thing that's actually the most powerful about them is is you know recognition outside of the security team within the organization that yeah mistakes happen like to err is human um we are going to have things that are vulnerable that we didn't intend to put there that's not that's not a truth to hide from that's a truth to basically just accept and then try to start working with like let's operate on the assumption that uh, to err is human let's figure out where the risks that are introduced as a byproduct of that exist fix those and then try to learn from that in ways that reduces how frequently that happens in the future. Um, you know, you can't just like run headlong. That's not a, a switch that you can necessarily flick on as an organization. It, it's usually a, a process of crawling first, then walking and then running. Right. And even kind of adopting that as a mindset that security errors are going to happen and that mistakes will happen that seems to me like it could be a whole entire cultural mind shift for the work environment. So it's more tough than just rolling out a simple program. It's It could be the entire environment needs to change and how you think about these things. Yeah. And, and you know, even even the, the management culture, leadership, all these, all these different things, like I'm, I'm increasingly convinced um, yeah, doing all the stuff with with Bug Crowd, with Disclose.io, you know, having worked in security pretty much since I finished high school, um, yeah, I'm passionate about this space of of, of vuln disclosure and, and crowdsourcing. Um, but I'm just fascinated with with security in general as a concept. And 
you know, thinking about it through that lens, I'm increasingly convinced that, you know, a lot of what we see on the internet is, is the product ultimately of people not thinking that that would be possible in the first place. Like this idea of like ostrich risk management, I call it where, you know, if you, if you bury your head in the sand, all of a sudden the problem won't matter anymore. I think there's, there's been a period of time in technology and on the internet where that has actually been true. Like we, you know, people have gotten away with, with not doing as much as they maybe should have. Um, but, you know, especially over the past two years with, with, you know, changes in the use of technology and I think changes in, in adversary behavior as well. Um, that's, you know, fairly obviously not a good strategy going forward. So, you know, helping people make that shift is, is something that we do, do a lot. I like that term of putting their head in the sand because in a lot of cases, someone will bring forward a report of a vulnerability and the company will say, well, there's a vulnerability now, now that you told us. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there are, there are, there is that side of it sometimes, you know, in terms of the difference between due diligence and due care, um, that can, that can go off down a deeper rabbit hole. But I do think this, this overall idea of like, how important is this? Like, is the boogeyman actually real or not? You know, is the stuff that our internal pen test team or our red teamers or our scanners, you know, the stuff that those things are finding, is that because they've got privileged insight? Or is this possible, you know, at the hands of someone who's halfway across the world that that doesn't know anything that other people on the internet couldn't find out for themselves? Because at the point where you demonstrate that that's true and the answer is yes, then all of a sudden it's like, well, what about the bad people? You know, this is this is someone who's good, who's just found a thing, like what's their next door neighbor like? Um, and all of a sudden that shift you know, takes place fairly naturally, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I'm curious too, when you look at the language of the disclosure policies that are put forth, what's important to outline as part of these programs? I know you do a ton of research into that as well. Yeah, hundred percent. And, and disclose.io is, um, yeah, it's really a, a cohort of people that have all been focused on this problem uh, that that kind of came together under this this banner to to build additional momentum behind it. Really, um, in terms of what to what to be looking as in, it's not just Casey the Bush lawyer's opinion. I guess is, is why I raise that um, because I am not a lawyer. I play one on TV, uh, but um, you know there are a lot a lot of folk that. Um, have worked on solving this problem for large organizations, for, for you know, the federal government, for DOJ, so on, that give their input. And I think that's what makes it really powerful. Um, really, it comes down to <clears throat> defining what your organization considers to be good faith. Um, you know, if, if, you're, if you're getting hacked, um, you know, the, the difficulty with it and the part that makes it kind of complicated is it all looks the same, more or less, on, on the receiving end. So... You know, as an organization, what's your what's your boundary for for what you consider to be, you know, the actions of someone who's who's testing your security in good faith versus someone who's who's malicious, um, and that ends up looking like you know, don't exfiltrate a ton of records, don't impact user experience, don't you know, all of those sorts of things that you often see in briefs. Making sure that's clear, uh, that's like the if if statement, right? Um, and if it's a if this then that, you know, if you fit within these definitions of, of good faith, then we authorize, you know, basically it's four things. It's authorization of, of that, that testing and that work under things like CFAA and, and anti-hacking laws for other people's computers. Um, if you're talking about something like a, like a phone or, or installable software, it's exemption uh, against um, anti-circumvention laws like the DMCA. 
um, cause that's, that's a second piece that's similar, but different to CFAA. Um, then exemption from violations of the acceptable, uh, use policy or the terms of service, uh, which is, you know, kind of what Aaron's law was, was trying to solve at, at the, uh, at the federal level. It's, it's that kind of thing. If you violate terms of service, does that constitute unauthorized access? You're basically saying, as long as you're doing this in good faith, no, it doesn't. And then a general statement of, of, you know, we believe that this is in good faith. Um, those four things are, are kind of the four pillars of, of the, um, the boilerplate that we put out there. And it's interesting because, you know, you could very easily write like a 500 page legal policy that, that covers, you know, all of the other edge cases that aren't fully covered off by those four things. But the trouble with that is that, you know, no one would read it. Um, you know, half the time you've got hackers that, you know, not only aren't lawyers, but aren't necessarily English as the first language, for example. So there's this balancing act between making it clear and making it like legally as complete as it can be and safe for, for both parties. So that's, that's the overall kind of approach that, that we've taken to it. And, you know, I think the bigger thing is standardization and actually getting it out there in the first place. Because in reality, companies that put policies out that actually go to some lengths to say, hey, we get what you're doing. This is okay. Um, it's very rare that there's trouble between, between researchers and, and those organizations. So just to normalize that in the first place, I think is actually the bigger goal. So when you mentioned good faith, uh, and so when companies are looking to develop these good faith type policies and they're putting their their heads together, where does that decision making process occur? Where is it being handled? Is it being um, a is it the product of a collaboration between security teams, or is it at the management level, or what's how involved is the infosec community in this? Usually, I mean, left to its own devices, it'll it'll be the security or the product team uh, that you know, in some cases, just pick something up, you know, do copy paste and, and kind of slap it on a website, and off it goes from there. Um, that's the thing that happens sometimes. Um, you know, more more often, they'll they'll interact with the uh, the in house counsel or, or external counsel. Um, sometimes the marketing team gets involved. To make sure that you know the verbiage is is kind of on brand and and different things like that, it, it can end up becoming you know uh, uh, quite an involved process and, and a bit of a you know decision by consensus. And that that often I think is is why these policies end up being you know a million pages long and having all sorts of confusing stuff in them because everyone wants to add something, right? Um, so that's a part of what what Disclose.io puts out there as a boilerplate to say, here's the simplest possible version of this that's going to be as complete as it can be. And frankly, like this is where Bug Crowd comes into it as well um, in terms of helping organizations navigate that, you know, when they've got different stakeholders that are trying to work out, you know, is this a good idea or not? How do we, how do we frame the language to make it safe? All those different things. That can be, you know, a, a pretty complicated conversation to have for the first time. I think for folks that have been through it before, it gets a lot easier. But if you've never interacted with this sort of thing before, it can be quite like, whoa, what the hell are we doing? Um, so, you know, oftentimes we'll, we'll get involved as bug crowd to actually help basically align those stakeholders, understand what the different concerns are and, and, and try to you know, bring that back to a midpoint. Yeah, that seems like it would be a lot to navigate for sure. 
It, it can be. It can be. I think again, you know, as as stand, this is why you know standardize. Excuse me, standardization and adoption um, of of you know VDP in particular, but then you know for the folks that are ready and and mature enough to do a bug bounty program, that as well. The more of that that's going on, the more it becomes a function of of precedent rather than you know trying to work out whether it's right or wrong. It's like yeah, everyone else is doing it, so we should too. Which to me is one of the most exciting things about CISA uh, and and the uh, the BOD twenty oh one stuff. Like that's all of the federal agencies basically being told they have to do it as they adopt it they're signaling to each other but they're also signaling to the states that's that signals out to corporate we saw the same thing happen with hack the pentagon when that started like that was that was a massive um signal out to pretty much everyone that like the apex defender and you know arguably the apex predator on the planet is reaching out and asking for the help of hackers out there on the internet to secure their stuff that kind of implies that it's a good idea for basically everyone else. So this idea of precedent is is pretty powerful. Well, when you mentioned the transition from VDP to bug bounty, what is the breaking or not not breaking point, but the turning point where companies are, you know, coming to you and saying, we want to go to bug bounty and you then say, okay, I think you're ready now. You know, what what point is that? Yeah, it, it's, I mean, for starters, there's got to be the the will to do it within an organization. I think if that's not there, then 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 we don't um, we don't necessarily force it because you don't want it to be something that you're doing begrudgingly, if that makes sense. Um, so that, that's, a, that's a starting point. Um, <clears throat> Maturity-wise, really, it comes down to your your ability to to remediate. Like, what, what's what's your vulnerability management process? How does that look? You know, is your vulnerability management process working in concert with your incident response process in a way that's mature enough to be able to handle actually proactively asking people out there on the internet to come and hack you? And, you know, the answer to that question is not always yes. Um, we, we have organizations that will say, yeah, we want to start a bug bounty next week. And we'll say, hey, like, here's what's going to happen if you do that. It's not uh, like, no, that's silly. It's more of a, okay, we like where your head's at and where you're wanting to get to, but here are the rational steps to get there as opposed to just flicking the switch and turning the whole thing on. Um, so it's really, I, I do think the response process, you know, Katie, Katie Mazuris, um, her, her vulnerability coordination maturity model, um, I, I thought captured a lot of the considerations that go into that quite, quite well. Um, you know, bug crowd, obviously helps organizations like work out where we're, where they're at and, and put together a roadmap to get to that point if that's something that they want to do. Um, yeah. And, and what I would say as well is that, <clears throat> you know, I think there's a lot of term confusion around bug bounty as, as, a, as a phrase. It drives me nuts, um, as you could imagine, uh, given my involvement in this space. But, you know, bug bounty gets used interchangeably with vulnerability disclosure, um, it gets used interchangeably with with private crowdsourcing or you know even private outsource pen testing like all of these things bug crowd do but be, because bug bounty is the term oftentimes people have heard the most they just refer to all of it as bug bounty and if you've got an opinion on what a bug bounty is which is usually a public program with with rewards attached that might not always be suitable for you as an organization so that that term confusion can get a little bit um, tricky to unpack but I do think, you know, everyone ultimately will end up running a vulnerability disclosure program. I think that's just like inertia 
is, is carrying us in that direction in terms of how the internet works. Um, I do also think that private, you know, crowdsourcing or outsourcing of things like pen test in terms of, you know, being able to access the right talent to, to answer your security questions. We need that and the need for that is increasing. So I think everyone's going to end up doing some version of that in the future. I think the idea of going out to the open internet and saying, hey, we'll pay you a hundred grand if you find a critical issue. There's a, there's a, you know, a decent chunk of organizations that will end up doing that, but I don't think it's necessarily everyone. Well, those are some good points and it seems like good news that we're heading into a good direction with more and more companies starting to adopt these VDP programs. Um, and I know too, we've talked in the past about kind of the concept of legal safe harbor. And that was a big, that was big back in 2018 when there was a big effort to make sure that there's a clear understanding of the legal terms and conditions for approaching how you hack these different systems. So have you seen that term shift at all or grow in the past years? Has it evolved? I, yeah, definitely. I think the um, <clears throat> the big thing, you know, we started working on on this problem, the the idea of, of policy terms and, and the legal language behind them being kind of ambiguous, you know, all the way back in 2014 as bug crowd. And there, there was others who'd worked on that as well, like the RFP policy from Rainforest Puppy that dates back to 2001. Um, you know, DOJ put stuff out, NTIA put stuff out, uh, you know, Berkeley and Amit Elazari. Um, there's all of these kind of, okay, this is, this is a difficult, this is a problem. We need to try to find ways to standardize and solve it. Um, what happened in, in 2018, and, and I really do credit Amit for this, um, was just a whole lot of noise around the nature of the problem itself. Cause I, I think people have been working on the solution up to that point, but there wasn't as much of an understanding around why this is an issue. Um, yeah, specifically in the um, you know, good faith, like researchers that have <clears throat> an ethical bar that, that they're, that they're staying above, um, in, in, in their work and, you know, they respect morality, they respect the law, whatever else. They're the only ones that are ignoring, uh, that are, sorry, paying attention to anti-hacking laws. Um, and, and, you know, the way that those laws are written, it's, it can be quite ambiguous around what you're doing, whether or not it's actually legal at any given point in time. Meanwhile, the bad guys who are ignoring the law anyway, because they're a bad guy and that's what they do, um, they're, they're basically, you know, undeterred by, by all of that stuff. So that you end up with this chilling effect on people that are trying to work in good faith and, and actually help make the internet safer, while you've also not really got much of a deterrent or a control against the actual adversary. Um, that was, you know, a lot of awareness got put into that in, in 2018, just to say it like, this is, this is not good. Like this is, you know, the internet needs an immune system and we've got the equivalent of an autoimmune deficiency at this point in time. So we need to deal with that. Um, since then to your question, there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of really good, um, you know, probably less noisy, but more, more kind of productive implementation uh, of, of, you know, these kind of concepts like the Van Buren, uh, trial that was in front of the Supreme Court. There was a bunch of work that went into that with Amici briefings and, and different things to make sure that SCOTUS, you know, knew what was up and, and knew our point of view on it. And they ended up ruling in a way that that basically supported uh, this concept of of good faith research. Like they they ruled against broadening the CFAA in a way that would you know potentially even more seriously chill 
the effect of, of good faith security research. You know, we've seen DMCA carve outs for, for medical devices, for, for automotive, for election systems. Um, you know, we saw in, in 2020, um, you know, the, the DHS put out election security guidance that included safe harbor for, for VDP programs out to, out to counties and states. Um, we saw states actually adopt that and use that as a way to, you know, not just find vulnerabilities in their systems, but give them, you know, an answer to the question, what are you doing to, to keep this safe with respect to confidence in, in democracy itself, which turned out to be a pretty important question to be able to speak to last year um, and, and so on. So yeah, it's, it's continuing to grow in momentum, which I'm very pleased by. Right. Well, I also wanted to ask about, you know, what you're seeing from a global perspective. And I know you're a native of Sydney, Australia. In case, in case the listeners haven't, haven't figured that out by now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have to ask every once in a while on my Twitter feed, a tweet from you will pop up with just a terrifying picture of a gigantic spider. So, you know, I'm always like, do you squish them or do they just kind of go away? Some of them are friendly. The one that I think you're talking about was was uh, my wife and I took a took a quick quick break. So we, we have been in Sydney for the past 18 months. We, we kind of, you know, effectively bugged out of the US uh, seeing, seeing COVID. We're actually in San Francisco airport as as national emergency was declared and got into Australia two days before the uh, the borders were shut, so we thread the needle pretty fine on that one. But it was mostly to to not be disconnected from family because uh, we knew that it would probably go on for some time. Um, you know, just wanting to make sure that uh, we we could do the um, the right things as as kids. Um, and yeah, that that was the deal there. But um, yeah, the spider I think you're talking about, they're actually pretty friendly. They're skittish. And if they, you know, fall out of the sun visor into your lap when you're driving your car, it's it's kind of terrifying. But they um they they take care of the nastier ones. So so that's that's why we like those ones. It's a huntsman. Oh man. Well, I don't know if I can ever call a spider friendly, but <laughs> the reason I brought that up is because you've had the experience both in Australia and then also in San Francisco, and you may have a good perspective on how the state of vulnerability disclosure is different around various areas of the globe right now. Um, is there any place worldwide where there are more mature vulnerability disclosure models or guidelines or rules in place, um, or you know, vice versa, where there that where they are less mature? Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. I mean, I'll speak to the ones that are more mature. Um, yeah, the Netherlands ha have been really good with this stuff for a long time uh you know there's there's the t-shirt um i hacked the dutch government and all i got was this lousy t-shirt like that that thing's been around for 12 or 13 years and it's it's a collectible um so you know <clears throat> those guys in particular are, are a country that that you know basically at some point in time decided that this was really important you know put the effort into into standardizing it and normalizing it and, and have you know reaped the benefit from it since um estonia is is pretty amazing as well it's interesting because you've got these kind of smaller countries population wise that are able to be a bit more agile i think um that you know just decide to do a thing and then go off and do it um honestly i think the us has been pretty incredible in in terms of its leadership in in, in this area uh you know once once the um the hacked pentagon stuff got rolling you know that that kind of rolled downhill, um, you know, in, in terms of like congressional bills, you know, hack the XYZ 
uh, coming out of out of Congress, and then you know BOD twenty oh one out of DHS and uh, and OMB. Um, you know, Australia is is catching up. I think um, you know we, we're talking a lot with the Department of Home Affairs around their cybersecurity strategy. They included vulnerability disclosure as one of the four. Uh, recommendations or for primary recommendations in that document. So that's the sort of thing that we're seeing amongst countries that that haven't kind of crossed the threshold yet. I, w- I would say that Australia, as an example, you know, we've got like National Australia Bank, um, Seek, Atlassian, you know, Canva, a bunch of customers down there. So it's happening. But in terms of it being a thing that we just do, I'd say that they're a little further back from from say the US or or, or you know our friends our Dutch friends, um, but there's work going into basically correcting that. And you know I'd say the same goes for like I know the Singaporean government's working really actively on this stuff. Um, Dubai, you know, there's there's different places around the world where you kind of see it switch on and and it kind of gets moving from there. Um, the OECD as well. So there's lots of activity in in Europe around starting to fold this in behind some of the kind of leading edge stuff they did around privacy because you know you, you can't really have privacy without security so you know this is coming in behind that as a way to make sure that um some of the stuff they've done to protect their citizens data is actually possible in the first place because the controls have integrity to them um yeah so in general it's it's a it's a mishmash like it, it's it's really i do think there are kind of lighthouse countries that have led the way the us is definitely one of them um, and at this point in time, there's a decent, you know, cohort of, of countries that are basically, you know, actively working on, on catching up. Yeah, that's awesome that it's becoming kind of a global across the world effort. A hundred percent. I mean, it, it was always an interesting balance to strike. Yeah, you do a startup, you come to Silicon Valley because that's 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 where you go and, and you, you get the advantages of, of it's like being an actor and going to Hollywood. Like this place is just it's been doing it for a really long time. So it's set up to do it well. Um, but at the same time as you, you're taking advantage of that and building here, you know, having this global mindset of it being a universal solution, not just a North American one, um, that's always been kind of idling away in the back of my head around like making sure that we, we break out of North America is, is almost a sandpit um, at, at some point as bug crowd, but then just the space in general. And, um, you know, that's that's happening now, which is cool. That is cool. Well. I mean, looking at that trend and other trends and looking ahead to 2022, do you see any big trends emerging when it comes to vulnerability disclosure? And I know that you guys have your inside the mind of a hacker report, so would love to hear any big takeaways from that as well as it relates to where things are going in the future. Yeah, most definitely. I I, uh, I, I do think, you know, we're, we're heading into another year that has a lot of a lot of elections in it. Um, and, you know, I think at this point in time, the the relationship between information warfare and cybersecurity, you know, it, it that's always been a thing, but I think it really showed its head in, in, in 2020 in a way that a lot of people understood in a way that they hadn't really understood before. Um, there's a lot of stuff coming up uh, next year. You know, the midterms here in Australia, there's probably going to be a federal election. Sorry, the midterms here in the US, there's probably going to be a federal election in Australia, um, lots of other countries. So those are all opportunities for that that subject to come back up. And, you know, it does come back to like, to what degree can we trust 
the systems that 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 we rely on to actually conduct the democratic process you know to me that's that's a really important question to be to be able to answer um i i do see vdp as a as a fundamental tool to to combat both the security side of that and also the information warfare side of that because you can go to a voter even if they're non-technical and say it's neighborhood watch for the internet and they'll they'll kind of get it right um it doesn't doesn't mean that it's perfect but it means that yeah i've just explained to you something that we are doing to try to keep your your vote and your information safe which is which is good um i see that playing out pretty pretty interestingly next year um probably another one is is just the um the temerity of attackers just in general like people don't seem to care as much about getting caught anymore and and that to me was a pretty big shift in attacker behavior that that started in 2020 but has continued and i think spilled over into the ransomware groups and and cyber criminal operators in, in 2021 um you know that combined with the fact that that ransomware operators like their business models working quite well <laughs> so that means they've got a lot of money to spend on on tooling and innovation you know they're they're a startup too in a lot of ways so reinvesting some of those proceeds into being more effective where that goes next i'm not sure but you know as a as an entrepreneur putting myself in their shoes that's probably what i'd be working on right now so i'd expect to see the outcome of of that start to play out next year um, that one's a little a little terrifying, but um, you know I think just staying on top of it. There's a lot of work going into that just to combat ransomware, not so much as a as a specific type of malware, but as this new business model. You know, it used to be that <clears throat> attackers could only monetize things that were of value when they stole them, but ransomware basically introduced this idea of denying service and, and being able to monetize that, which broadens the scope of of your you know potential attack surface. Um, as a as a criminal operator, so you know if it works, it's going to continue to happen because that's that's how capitalism <laughs> works. Uh, you know, even for the bad guys. So yeah, but you know, with with the uh, the inside of the um, inside the mind of a hacker report, I think on the crowd side, you know, really the pandemic has driven a lot of of introspection. I think in in the community on on the researcher side, you know, people wanting to take better control of of their their destiny so to speak from from a career standpoint it's like i i, I want to you know be in a position where i can actually have more of a direct input into into what i'm getting back and you know just thinking about that the you know the great resignation the sort of <clears throat> millennial midnight midlife crisis thing that's happening right across the world has has definitely played out in the hacker community in some ways that i think they're actually quite productive like you know 80 percent of the folk we surveyed had had found vulnerabilities they'd not encountered before the pandemic. That was partly a product of technology change, but also because they were learning new things, um, which I think is 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 pretty awesome. Um, you know, the tech side of it, like seventy four percent of the folk uh, responded that you know vulnerabilities in general had increased since the onset of COVID nineteen. Um, that whole idea of digital transformation and how quickly we all had to pivot to basically respond to the pandemic, like speed is the natural enemy of security when it comes to things like that. So we've seen a lot of shifts in, in vulnerability patterns that that do oftentimes look like a product of people just doing stuff quickly and not necessarily thinking through the, uh, the downside. So that's, I think we're going to continue to unpack how that's played out over 2022 as well. 
I was going to say, I'm curious about how you mentioned it, but the pandemic and kind of this changing viewpoint of work and remote work and how that's really having an impact on the InfoSec community overall and, you know, making different people within the industry start to rethink things. Definitely. Well, I mean, you know, my, my own experience of that is getting stuck on the, on the opposite side of the planet for, for 18 months. Like that was, that was a thing. <laughs> I, I, I think, I think everyone's had some sort of version of that in terms of ways that they've had to change how they, how they operate and work. Um, but, you know, more generally this, this idea of just access and distributed access, like another, another piece in the um, ITMOA report, 45% of the respondents believe that, that, um, you know, restrictive scope uh, actually inhibits the discovery of critical vulnerabilities that that are meaningfully impactful to an organization. I think that's more true now. Like that, that's always something that I've believed is true, but it's more true now than it was before because everyone's accessing things from the outside. So this idea of like, as an organization, it's not just your front door website, it's your entire, you know, entity. Um, and all of the different ways into that, you know, ultimately, if if I'm an attacker trying to get in and create a, an outcome, like, I don't care how I do it, I just want to get in. So, you know, scope kind of needs to reflect that, I think, even more urgently, you know, next year than, than it has in the past. Mm-hmm. And to your point, too, with trends changing as current events change, too, now with more companies starting to turn more toward a hybrid approach with half of their workforce working remote and the other half going back into the office, I'm sure that's introducing new security complexities as well. Yeah, definitely. One of the things that we saw uh, about midway through last year, um, not long after work from home became almost like this universal thing that everyone was doing to to, to deal with COVID as we figured the vaccine stuff out. Um, you know, basically zero day in, in like home IOT and, and, and routers and different things like that, it started to sell, um, you know, that stuff's been around for a long time, but you know, prior to COVID people in general, like the adversary bad guys weren't, weren't interested in buying it because it wasn't an attractive target for them. You know, the thing that, that work from home shifted and I think hybrid will actually maintain is this idea that your home network is functionally a part of your corporate attack surface now. Um, and that's, that's not really a problem that we've, you know, gotten our arms around in, in, in the past in, in a way that's consistent, you know what I mean? Like teleworking, all that, all that sort of thing. We've got solutions for that, but to have the entire workforce, you know, essentially phoning in from untrusted environments that are targetable, um, are consistent, you know, do have, a family in them that you have to now trust as as potentially hostile in in terms of their devices and whatnot. Um, that's a whole new kind of dimension to the threat landscape that I, I think we're only just starting to scratch the uh, the paint off that one. Yeah, that's slightly terrifying. There's a lot there. Yeah, I mean, there's a, you think about the number of variables that come into that. It's you know, whenever you see that happen, it's like okay, there's gonna be there's gonna be dragons in there somewhere, um, just because there's so much like complexity to unpack complexity is 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 you know the um the natural ally of the adversary because they can hide they can they can find weakness and they've got more options to find weakness to exploit uh, all those different things so like logically that's going to be where we see some some action well i'll have to go all around my house now and clear out all the iot devices (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, just keep them patched, <laughs> you know, pra- practically making sure, you know, it, it does really come back to some of those basic hygiene things for, for the average person. Like, you know, avoid password reuse, like enable multi-factor authentication wherever it's available. Um, you know, patch patch your stuff and, and, and don't wait. I think if, you, if you're doing those three things just as a baseline, you're, you're in pretty good shape if, if the objective is to outrun, you know, the other guy, not outrun the bear or the panda. Right. Well, thank you so much, Casey, for coming on to the podcast today. And it's always great to talk to you and hear your thoughts on vulnerability disclosure. For sure. No, I appreciate it. And yeah, for, for the listeners, so the uh, the Inside the Mind of a Hacker report from Bug Crowd is, is out or it will be out, I think, by the time this goes up. Um, it will be at uh, itmoah, that's inside the mind of a hacker.bugcrowd.com. Go check it out. You know, we, we created that report really to, you know, demystify the persona of the hacker for folks that were intrigued, you know, potentially a little scared or just wanting to understand more about how they think and, and what they're up to. So uh, enjoy. Thanks again, Casey. Have a good one. Cheers, Lindsay. While you were hacking the planet.